Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. You may remember that I just got back from Hawaii a little while ago. I visited the island of Kauai and birded there a little while I was on vacation. And I'm excited today to have as my guest Alex Wong. Alex is a native of Tacoma, right where I live. His dad lives right near me, uh, but has been working in conservation and bird biology on the islands of Hawaii for the last several years. And I'm excited to have him here as a guest today. He has a wealth of knowledge and has been really fun to talk to. I've also uh, met him a few times on Christmas Bird Counts. His dad and Alex, uh, Art and Alex, uh, cover an area for the Vashon Island Bird Count that my good friend Ken Brown and I also go on, and we tend to meet up at one spot looking for eared grebes. So most of my experience with Alex as a birder has been looking for eared grebes uh, at, uh, at the Purdy Spit area, uh, the Wana area in uh, Kitsap County. I guess, actually in Pierce County, I think, in Pierce County as part of the Vashon Island Bird Count. But I'm excited to have Alex as my guest today. I think you'll learn a lot about Hawaii, the history, and the current status of Hawaiian birds. So help me welcome to the Bird Banter Podcast, Alex Wong. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming over today. Yeah, no problem. This is a first for me. Uh, I now have the son of a previous guest on the show, so the first father-son guest pair. So good news. Yeah, and and it was a quick, short walk on this beautiful day in Washington. It is. Just uh, Alex's dad, uh, Art, lives just down the road from me here. And uh, so he's home visiting from Hawaii for the Thanksgiving holiday, it sounds like, and uh, was kind enough to come up and talk with us today. So that's great. Yep. When are you headed back? Uh, Tomorrow. Oh, so gosh, (laughs) at the last minute. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Terrific. Perfect timing. I just get back from Orcas Island uh, where I went with my girlfriend for uh, the holidays and uh, you're headed back to Hawaii. Alex, you what, what prompted you to uh, go to Hawaii both to study and to live? How did, I mean, you're from Washington. How did that come about? All right. Well, um, I think actually my dad kind of mentioned this uh, in his interview, but growing up he would go birding and my sister and I uh, were not fans of it at the time. That sounds um, like my kids, yeah. Yeah, I distinctly remember getting mad at him on the way to soccer practice when we pulled over the car and had all my friends in the car. And I was like, what are you doing? Why aren't we going to soccer practice? But he had seen a bird. So surprisingly, I didn't get into birding until college. Yeah, and I, I knew I wanted to work in conservation and environmental studies, and I started as an environmental studies major and was going into environmental policy, which I think is really important, but is also very dry. And it wasn't, um, while taking environmental studies classes, I ended up taking a summer course called uh, Natural History of Birds with uh, this professor, Breck Tyler. And, and I, is this at the University of Hawaii? Or is this, is this uh, no, this was actually U- University of California, Santa Cruz, where oh, I did okay. my undergraduate. Okay. Um, and I, I loved it. A, I loved it because we had uh, field trips. Um, got to go outside. Uh, we went on a we went kayaking for class. Very nice uh, through Elkhorn Slough, and um, all that was excellent. And then I also had a, a knack for it. I found which uh, was unexpected because all those times going out with my dad and me pointedly ignoring him, I somehow internalized things. My son is sort of like that. He is is 
objectively not a bird. He's never been interested. But he'll say, Dad, did you see the red-tailed hawk? That was a rough-legged hawk, Dad. He'll just point things out. Where did he learn those things? Yeah, yeah. No, um, I remember we were looking at birds in, in our bird guide and learning this. This was like a you know introductory class. And I, I would be like, I have no idea what bird this is. I'm not sure I've seen it before. But go to the index and look up, you know, green heron and see if that's that's it and it would be it and you're like i don't know how i knew that name but <laughs> you've heard it a few times growing yeah. up it, it's things you hear when you're young stick with you it's uh amazing so so in undergraduate i got into um birding and uh or bird co- birds and bird conservation and what sealed the deal is i uh after that summer i went um, to australia and studied abroad and all the birds down there were uh, big, colorful, and more loud, and that really uh, cemented my my love for birds. And after that, I switched, or I actually didn't switch. I added a major uh, biology to my environmental studies. Okay. Stopped uh, going down the path of environmental policy and went more for wildlife biology. Field biology, wildlife biology—that mm-hmm. sort of thing, which has to be a lot more fun. It was a lot more fun. Yeah, I could get definitely get behind it a lot more right. than environmental Santa policy. Santa Cruz has to be one of the hotbeds of birders in the country. Yeah, it was. Yep, uh, it was amazing. It was, between those two places, I really got hooked. And then uh, um, I started off after college with an internship at a Point Reyes Bird Observatory, now called Point oh. Blue. Yeah. Um, and then did a variety of seasonal field jobs in. Uh, Arizona and Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico. Um, before I did a uh, AmeriCorps internship, a year-long internship that uh, in Hawaii we call them kupu internships, uh, with the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project on Maui, and I did that for a year. And at that point, um, I had a self-imposed deadline to go to grad school because I took the GRE my senior year of undergrad. Okay. So it's only it, good for a certain amount of time. It's only good for, uh, four or five years. I think it was five years. And so at that point I was like four years in to these field jobs and I, um, um, and I finally decided, uh, you know, what I wanted to do for grad school. And so I went to university of Hawaii Hilo, um, and did my, or got my master's degree there, uh, working with the Koi, which is a endangered bird on Maui. So two questions for those of us mm-hmm. who are not intimate with Hawaiian birds. First of all, the college the college is on the Big Island, or yeah. So the the main campus for uh, University of Hawaii is Manoa, which is on Oahu. But mm-hmm. then the um, there's a variety of campuses, but the next biggest one is University of Hawaii Hilo, um, which is on the Big Island. Okay. So I was going to school on the Big Island, but I did uh, eleven months of field work on Maui. Um, in collaboration with the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project. Okay. And the bird you described, was, say it again. A koi koi. And that is one of the honey creepers? It is. It okay. is. A... T- tell us what it looks like. I'll, I'll make sure I put a link on the podcast notes to a photograph or something. But... Yeah. Um, it, it's an excellent one. People always ask, I'm sure you get this too, what's your favorite bird? And it's really hard to pick one. But, um, but you know, the koi koi would probably have to be mine. It's uh, this black large honey large for a honey creeper and it's got uh this cool gray mohawk and uh neon orange uh feathers on its nape and it's just kind of a um a badass yeah very cool (laughs) 
it uh it runs around along the top of the ohia forest so um and not hard to find yeah it's hard to find it's endemic to maui it's the second most endangered b- bird there behind the kiwi q or maui parrot bill okay um the koi koi is also called the crested honey creeper and it it does this cool thing where it uh it's got long powerful legs and instead of flying from flower to flower in the treetop it just runs like <laughs> runs right on the trees mm-hmm. yeah cool. it just it just runs across the foliage like roadrunner crossed with a honey creeper yep yep <laughs> very cool i'm obviously they can fly but they tend to tend to move on their feet yeah well yeah they they'll just uh i mean they'll fly and they ch- they chase off all the smaller birds um apapane mm-hmm. eevee um it'll they're very territorial and guard the best uh the best flowers Primarily a frugivore, or eat nectar and flowers. Uh, yeah, primarily a nectivore. Okay. Uh, I mean, they all they all eat insects, but yeah, it uh, it definitely guards the lehua blossoms of the ohia tree. Okay, so they got a really really narrow niche. Mm-hmm. So habitat has to be a big issue for that bird. Yeah, they they are um, unfortunately uh, still declining. Uh, the latest. Um, bird survey brought their numbers down by half uh yeah so uh when i was doing my masters from uh, 2012 to 2015 we always would say there was about 3,000 of them now it's like 1500 um and they're only on the windward side of haleakala which is part of which is the the big volcano on maui mm-hmm. they used to be that's on, that rainy side the windward side yep but they used to be on uh haleakala and uh, West Maui Mountains, as well as a whole other island, Molokai. Oh. So they, they've really lost um, a lot of their range. Um, and they also would have been uh, down to uh, sea, uh, sea level back in the day before disease was right. introduced. Good introduction to the, the issues that Hawaiian birds are facing. I know that we talked a little bit about before the podcast. Uh, t- tell listeners, you know, I just got back from Hawaii mm-hmm. and the weather was terrible and I couldn't really get to high elevations and there are just no honey creepers. I mean, down low, there's, no, I don't think there are any, maybe there are, but I couldn't find any. And so, so Hawaiian birds have faced a lot of challenges uh, and kind of outline that for listeners. Yeah. Um, so they, these group of honey creepers, the honey creepers is the, um, this group of finches, they had an adaptive radiation in Hawaii. They're, they're kind of the, the main, uh, mostly most well-known birds for Hawaii. Um, while we do have some other adaptive radiations such as the uh, thrushes and oos, But uh, the honeycreepers um, had a spectacular radiation from a, a bird um, that's closest, ans- closest living relative is the common rose finch. So it kind of looks like a, an even more bland house finch. Um, we had all these birds um, evolve with long uh, sickle-shaped bills. Um, Oculoas have these really long curved bills that uh, were used to reach insects under the, under branches. Uh, EEV, everyone knows with a bright red sickle-shaped bill to re- uh, really weird-shaped ones. There's um, there we had fly-catching honeycreepers. We have snail specialist the pooli was a thought to be a snail specialist um as well as uh some have retained the ancestral conical bill for crunching seeds um such as our palila 
uh, on the Big Island, which is uh, super specialized. It only, or the majority of its food is uh, mamani seeds from a specific tree that lives in the subalpine zone. Talk about specialists. Wow. Yeah. And these uh, mamani seeds um, have a low levels of arsenic in them. So they actually, uh, uh, rats can't even eat them. Um, rats don't eat them because they, they'll make them sick. But Palila exclusively eat them almost. Um, so that's uh, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, it is. So the, the birds are they faced a number of threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were they evolved on the islands, very isolated, became very specialized at eating flowers and nectar and things that hang around the trees in Hawaii. What happened to them all? All right. So then um, there were a few waves of extinction. Uh, the first one was when the Polynesians arrived and are, are now our Hawaiians. Uh, and they brought with them uh, rats um, and pigs. But probably the biggest changes were they totally um, uprooted the lowland ecosystems and modified them for their own agriculture. Um, and, and then also the introduction of a mammalian predator when there had been none. Um, these, these birds that had lived there for hundreds of thousands of years without a mammalian predator were now nesting on the ground. Uh, they lacked, um, defense mechanisms. They, uh, are called naive. They lacked, uh, awareness, frankly, and, and they still do. Um, it's got to take millennia for that type of evolution to happen and there's no time. Yeah. I mean, I actually really like, uh, bird banding in Hawaii because the um, uh, if anyone's held a cardinal you know that they're pretty mean and they try to <laughs> bite you and yeah. or scream at you and then the, the honey creepers are so um, lackadaisical they, they inherently don't... docile I mean, yeah. they just don't have a clue no idea the apapani will even sing in the hand it, it's great <laughs> uh, the worst the, the only uh, response I've seen from apapani that might qualify as like threat responses one mimicking elapio which is a different bird that they, and they don't normally mimic so maybe this is like it's trying to sound scary but they don't squirm they're 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 very chill that's amazing that's amazing yeah. so the original hawaiians the polynesians mm-hmm. came uh, this may sound naive on my part mm-hmm. didn't they come in uh, basically large canoes mm-hmm. how do rats get in a large canoe i moved wouldn't they notice them yeah, uh, yes. Well, there's debate. Did they tow barges or? No, there's debate whether they were brought on purpose or not. Um, wow. Uh, on one hand, um, having rats on your boat is a source of protein. Um, okay. So, or or they could have come in. Uh, these, I mean, these double hull canoes were pretty large, and they had to be storing food. So could have just gotten into the food supply. It is possible that they just stowed away. Okay. Yeah. Just seemed like. Boy, I, I'd notice a rat in my canoe. You know? Yeah. But they're big, big uh, yeah. war canoes sort of things. So hard to say. I don't Somehow think... they got there. Somehow they got there. Um, and that was just the Polynesian rat. Now we have Norway rats and black rats. And actually, the of those three rats, the Polynesian rat is the smallest. And um, they're all bad, but uh, they're not as bad as some Le- of the bigger. Least uh, terrorist. Yeah. So that was kind of the first uh, wave of extinction, um, but in more modern times, we've had a, um, a more well-documented one, um, which is a 
they even know which boat came over in like the 1890s to Maui that brought the uh, Culex mosquito. Um, like it had filled up from uh, water jugs in Mexico, and instead of dumping those jugs out in the ocean when they're unloading them, they decided to carry the remnants of the water to the stream, dump them in the stream before refilling, and that is uh, how this mosquitoes got to Hawaii. One bad choice. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we have um, kind of poor biosecurity, and we've made a lot of uh, poor choices. We now have like eight different mosquitoes in Hawaii. So, so when did the Culex mosquito come? When was that, if they know exactly? Um, yes, I should actually probably know the year I mean, and, and the vessel. It was, uh, it was like the HMS Wellington uh, in 1894, but don't quote me on Around either the, of those. It was Late 1890s, give, yeah. or, ta- give or take. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so uh, this mosquito showed up, which now became a vector for disease. Um, as well as introduced chickens, um, which brought, which had carried a disease called avian pox. And so the first of our more modern uh, waves of extinction was actually not avian malaria, which is what you hear about now, right. but avian pox first. And that one uh, was, was very destructive. It uh, wiped out a lot of species really quickly, um, such as the ou, um, the oo, the... Um, Kona Grosbeaks, like uh, there's actually a long list of uh, extinctions there. And then more recently in the 1920s or so, avian malaria showed up. Um, the same mosquito was a vector for both of those? Yes. Oh. Uh, the, so the avian pox, um, it actually is just any mosquito uh, transmitted. It's, uh, okay. uh, it's transmitted just by touch. So if... Um, Mosquito lands on, or any bug could yeah. do it, really. It wouldn't have to be a mosquito. Yeah, yeah. and they, they transmit it to each other when they're, uh, the birds are nesting and okay. stuff. Um, and so that was uh, hugely destructive. But now um, the combination of avian malaria and avian pox is really a, a double whammy that almost always results in death. Um, and so we think um, avian malaria arrived... It's circumstantial, but they, it showed up at the same time that Northern Cardinals were introduced to the state. Um, so we think that they might have been the bird that brought that disease. Factor, and yeah. once, um, once it was out there, uh, it's really hammered the birds. Um, and why the, the, the native birds can only be found at high elevation now is that... Uh, this Culex mosquito is temperature dependent and as well as the plasmodium, which is the malaria itself. And so it uh, kind of maxes out on uh, around 5,000 feet. Um, it gets too cold for the uh, mosquitoes to breed. Um, I thought it was lower than that, 5,000 feet. Well, it's creeping up, yes. Uh, it was considered lower than those, but now with climate change. And, and this whole thing about a mosquito line, it's... It's a little misleading. It's, it's very dynamic. So in the spring, that line is lower. And uh, in the summer, as temperatures get warmer, mosquito populations boom. Um, actually, the worst time of year is October, October and November. Um, that's when the mosquitoes are at the highest elevations, kind of because it's been warm before, before the cold sinks mm-hmm. in. And this, uh, this year in particular, we've learned a harsh lesson with the QEQ translocation on Maui, just how high that 
uh, mosquito line is right now. Wow. So. Yeah. I, I read an interesting article. It seems like I first read it two or three years ago, but I looked it up before you came over the, the strategies to uh, screw up mosquitoes so that they can't uh, transmit the virus. They're genetically modified germs or bacteria they could introduce. So there are three possible strategies. It is, is, I mean, I'm always skeptical when we think mm-hmm. we can do better than nature and we're going to introduce stuff that doesn't exist to make things better. Has, do you have any opinion on that or have you thought that through? Yeah, it, it, uh, well, the mosquito landscape level mosquito control, I think would be, uh, fantastic. I mean, it certainly has the potential. It's it, to be the silver bullet. Um, you're right. There's, there is probably going to be some thing that we don't anticipate with that. Um, but at this point, with the habitat getting uh, crunched by increasing temperatures and mosquitoes moving farther and farther up the mountains and the birds having nowhere else to go above treeline, um, I think it's we really need to try it. Um, so landscape level mosquito control—that mm-hmm. that is a sign. That's a technical term that I I probably should understand, but mm-hmm. I don't. What does that mean? Um, so you you're talking about different ways to kind of engineer these mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Um, Ultimately, the goal would be to wipe out mosquitoes across the landscape rather than just like spot treatment of like, okay. you know. Okay, I, 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 that makes sense now. Yeah. To get rid of them all as opposed to just try to reduce their numbers a little somehow. Right, yeah. If there's any mosquitoes, it, um, then that, that vector is there. So um, how to do this? There's there's a variety of ways being looked into right now. I feel like, um, unfortunately, I feel like we're always five years out from landscape level mosquito control and it's... <laughs> Uh, it's a little frustrating. Um, I mean, malaria, human malaria is the, the probably one of the driving forces behind that type of movement. People mm-hmm. seem to care more about people than they do about birds a lot of times, and uh, yeah, it's understandable. Yep. Uh, but uh, yeah, there'd be lots of benefits if it could be done effectively and safely. That's the question. The unintended consequences issue is always scary. Yeah. Um... But you know, Hawaii is an isolated system. I think I think it's worth trying here. We already have all these crazy numbers of introductions. It's uh, if we wipe out mosquitoes there, they they were never there to begin with. You know, it's not like uh, we're taking food away from anything. Um, I think I think that's the place to try it. Um, there's definitely a huge need for if we want to see if we want our grandchildren to see these species. Sounds like the odds are more likely to work than the mongoose was to get rid of the rats. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so talk a little bit about uh, mammalian predators, how that's, uh, I know there's grazing issues, there's, you know, just plain old predation issues. Right. So in addition to the disease threat, which is probably the number one threat for our Hawaiian forest birds, uh, habitat modification and then introduced predators. Um, so rats... Um, I already talked about, but mongoose were introduced to um, all the islands but Kauai uh, to help take care of the rat problem, but that didn't work out because uh, rats were mostly nocturnal, mongoose are mostly diurnal. So instead of the mongoose uh, eating or eating the rats, it became the rats and mongoose uh, hammer the birds during the day and the night. <laughs> Uh, another one was barn owls were introduced, uh, similarly to take care of rats in the sugarcane fields. And now we have huge problems where, you know, barn owls are great. They're threatened in some parts of the Eastern U S they do not belong in Hawaii. 
uh, we have we have an owl, the Pueo, um, short-eared owl, um, and it's crepuscular, but more on the diurnal side. It's it's not nocturnal. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, people here with no short-eared owl, they're mostly active at dawn and dusk. Right. Rats out there, primary prey. Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah, or mice. Um, so they, the Pueo coexisted with our seabirds, which uh, come in to breed on land at night. And so the owls would go do their thing during the day, go to sleep. And then our um, seabirds, such as the Hawaiian petrel, Newell's shearwater, and our Hawaiian population of bandrum storm petrel, which I think will one day be considered its own species, uh, they came in at night. And now that barn owls are there, the barn owls figured out where the seabird colonies are, and they take out an adult every night or every other like night. Nothing. And then that kills the adult as well as the chick it was going to provision, and they can be really detrimental to our seabird colonies. I bet. I yeah. Bet. Yeah. And once a bird is introduced, boy, or once an, any species is introduced, it's hard to you open that bag. It's hard to close it back up. It's, uh... Yeah. So, so in short, our our forest birds um, have a lot of challenges because uh, it's not it can't be put on just avian malaria or just avian pox or just the mosquito it's it's a combination of they lost their lowland habitat uh, to humans um, they, they're losing their upland habitat to introduced European boar which are um, total rainforest destroyers I mean they can tear up a football sized field of rainforest in a day um, um, so the so there's not as much recruitment of our ohia trees and the forest gets uh, uh, much less diverse and doesn't have as much food resources for the birds. Now, boars have been eradicated from islands, Santa Cruz Island, I know, mm-hmm. a smaller island than, mm-hmm. they're not that much smaller than like Kauai or something, uh, but harder, not as, not as impenetrable, I guess. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, uh, political pressure of the, the, the boars and pigs because, um, the people now uh, have been hunting them for you know, generations. At least a, a few generations, and they do not want to give that up. Um, but actually, that's one of the things I do for my work. I, I work for the now work for the Natural Air Reserve System for the state of Hawaii, uh, Division of Forestry and Wildlife, and I'm kind of an offshoot of our program. Um, I have a little bird-focused team that I work with. I have a I have my Akupu intern of my own now, as well as a technician under me. Um, but the, the rest of our crew, the main business that we do is uh, build fences and eradicate pigs from uh, the most pristine areas. Um, so we have eight natural air reserves on the Big Island alone. Mm-hmm. Um, they encompass 95,000 acres. And uh, 25 years ago, none of that was fenced. Now we have about a third of it fenced and either ungulates removed or in the process of removal. I've I've seen photographs of where you know inside the inside the fence it's like starts an inch from the fence it's just beautiful pristine ju- not pristine but jungle looks like a jungle mm-hmm. and then outside the fence it looks like an overgrazed American West. <laughs> yes, yeah, it makes a huge difference. Um, so that's kind of the the first level of protection is is fencing it, removing the ungulates that are just uh, modifying the habitat overall, mm-hmm. and then why I kind of got hired was to then take a 
that uh, next level approach, um, what can we do specifically for the birds? Um, a lot of it involves predator control. Um, and a lot of it, um, and I like my job a lot because it has a very applied research um, aspect as well. Um, so one of our natural air reserves, uh, Puo Umi Natural Air Reserve in Kohala Mountain on the Big Island. Okay. Um, we knew, kind of knew there was a colony of Hawaiian petrels out there. Um, but they've never been documented where, where, and, uh, how many or anything, how many, or if they're really breeding there, we just, we knew that, um, uh, we knew actually from fencing part of that natural air reserve that at night you'd hear these strange sounds and they were the Hawaiian petrels coming, flying over. Um, and so actually, uh, just this summer, um, after three and a half years trying to find a burrow with a chick in it or a burrow of one of these uh, endangered birds, uh, we finally did. Um, and so actually that was in uh, uh, the news just like a couple weeks ago, locally at least. So you did the Hawaiian petrel dance? <laughs> I didn't have a Hawaiian petrel dance, but uh, um, yeah. Uh, it, so we started with um, uh, going out there doing night vision um, seeing that there were birds confirming that they were out there. Uh, then we put out these things called song meters, which, uh, um, just like a recording box, um, that records every night and we put them across the landscape much more broadly. And that helped us narrow down where our hotspot of bird activity at night was without right. us having to visit all these spots because, um, access in this area is a uh, helicopter access only. Um, it would be a really long trek, probably a two-day trek to even get there. Wow. Um, so, um, so that's why it's kind of taken years because I only get, you know, three weeks out there, three three campout weeks out there a year. Um, so we did the song meters, and then once we had our hotspot, we came in with uh, binoculars with uh, infrared um, abilities, so we could see even better than the night vision at night. Right. We were seeing them flying around, but we never could see them landing. Uh, we did a whole bunch of ground searching for burrows, and it wasn't until um, I ended up GPS tagging the birds. Uh, so using newer technologies that we were able to find some. Um, and so these birds are uh, another problem uh, for the seabirds is light pollution. Uh, they they uh, orient to the moon especially uh, young birds that are uh, fledging um, for the first time, they they go towards the moon because that's supposed to be where the water is and to take them out to sea. Um, but with humans and light pollution, they come to football fields, uh, football lights, Friday night lights, and <laughs> circle the lights over and over like moths to a flame until they exhaust their limited resources because this could be the bird's first flight. And right. they land on the ground. And they sit there, and Tell then me. a cat comes by. That's that. Um, so knowing that these birds were susceptible to light pollution, we got ourselves a big warehouse light, um, put it up there. It was like a spotlight. Um, by the ocean. Um, Towards the, the ocean. Yeah. This is, uh, this is on the windward side of Kohala. There's, there's no other um, towns around. It's, it's completely black out there, which is, uh, which is nice on a, on a new moon. Mm -hmm. um, and we set up our light, and sure enough, bird adult birds came in, circled it. We uh, set up mist nets with uh, 
extra oh, large. So that's how you, I, I was thinking you're going to use that to guide the young birds to the ocean. No, you were using it to capture some birds. Yeah. So we, we used it to capture adult birds, um, uh, in the breeding season and we attached GPS tags on six of them, um, that we caught and we got, uh, so I chose to use these GPS tags that don't have transmission to satellite. They, uh, the birds have to come back. We have these little, uh, base stations and it offloads it, uh, with radio telemetry. Right. Um, I chose to go with these GPS tags because they take a point every four minutes. So you get pretty high temporal resolution as mm-hmm. opposed to, um, if you had done the more expensive ones that, that, uh, um, uplink to satellites, you might get like four fixes in a day that might not answer our question. Get close enough. Yeah. So, um, and my question was, where are these birds breeding? Uh, so we, but it was risky going this way because I only got data on two of the six birds. Mm-hmm. Some of the birds did decide not to come back or they drop their harness immediately or right. something. Um, and of those two birds, one was a non-breeder, but one was a breeder and we went to, um, uh, we went to where it, it had landed and sure enough, there was a Burrow. petrol burrow with a baby chick in it. Now, some, some species of petrels are burrowing seabird, seabirds who make a burrow to nest in do it kind of colonially. So within a, there, you would expect to see a whole bunch within a relatively small area. Did you, I'm sure you looked around to see if there are others there. Yeah, no, this is our, our first one. We definitely did look around. Um, actually at this point, uh, this fall, Unfortunately, I, I had knee surgery, so I wasn't mm. out there myself. This is my, my crew you now. couldn't crack the whip. Yeah, um, <laughs> but they did look. Um, they only found the one. Um, there's a whole bunch of really steep drainages in this area, and it was kind of on the side of one, but not too steep that they couldn't access. But there's a lot of areas that are uh, uh, you would need repelling gear to access. Birds probably choose those on purpose. Hard, uh, hard to predate. Yeah, I think that's probably where they are. Um, I think the... Uh, maybe not on purpose, but because that's the only p- place that... Uh, so maybe you need a drone with an infrared camera to go <laughs> go find them at night or something. Yeah, yeah, maybe at, at night. But but now that we have um, at least one burrow on the ground, um, I really was kind of... I just wanted this to check the box, honestly, because at this... At, well before we even found this burrow, I was already thinking about the management and what we're going to do. Um, and... And the answer is predator control for this ground nesting seabird. And exactly. Now that I have a documented burrow, um, we can put in uh, for grants for a predator-proof fence, um, and so I'm getting that going, and then just doing uh, trapping in that area. You know, now we have an area to focus our trapping, to, as opposed to where in this whole mountain should we trap. So what predators would you, I mean, I'm sure, assuming mice and rats and probably cats, would mm-hmm. be the, are there other things you're worried about? And mongoose. Mongoose oh, is... Oh, I forget on that. Mongoose. Yeah. Mongoose is probably a, a pretty bad one. And cats. Those are um, hard to say, really, which which is the worst one. All, all three of those. Rats, cats, mongoose. Um, and we might be, uh, you know, two days hike from the nearest town. And there's still a ton of cats out there. It is amazing, yeah. isn't it? House cats are just, oh boy, I, don't get me going on yeah. house cats. So yeah, don't, me we, neither. We need to take the, 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 uh, the Australian approach and just kill them. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately we can't do, uh, we legally cannot do the cat uh, poisoning 
here in the U.S. So, um, you know, this is why we'll try to do the predator-proof fence. It's much, much, much more expensive. Oh, yeah, um, infinitely. But because Hawaiian petrels uh, have that potential to be colonial, um, I think if we even enclose a small area... Um, Could make a big difference. Yeah, and uh, they'll, they would naturally seed it and have higher survival in there, but um, I hope to spur that along with uh, social attraction by playing um, their calls at night, set up a sound speaker system within mm-hmm. this future fence. and uh, Hopefully you can get a really big area. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to be a problem if you have to fly everything, people to do it, and the stuff in by helicopter is going to be, oh my goodness. Yes, and that is the case. Yep. <sighs> big job. Yep. Big job. Good work, though. You found yeah. one. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I actually mostly work with forest birds, but uh, um, I kind of... My job title right now is Endangered Forest Bird Field Supervisor. Wow, that's I kind, a mouthful. I kind of uh, slid seabird. I like seabirds a lot too, so I kind of slid them in under the radar because uh, they were nesting at night in a sort of forest area. So I'm including them in my purview of my job. Good job. Good uh, job. Expand your purview. That's great. Yeah. You mentioned you'd switched jobs recently, and kind of an interesting story. Tell tell people about that. So okay, so that long job title yeah. actually changes on Monday. <laughs> I'm a uh, uh, changing from being employed, I'm going to do the same job, but um, I was employed through the Research Corporation of the University of Hawaii uh, for the state with Division of Forestry and Wildlife. Now I'm going to be a true civil servant uh, service employee um, for the state, and so my new job title will be Specialist 3. S3. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can spell that one. I yep. can even say it. Specialist 3. Yeah. Sounds yeah, like little... it's in the Army. A little more generic, yeah, but, um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it'll, it'll be good in the long run, uh, to be with the state. Um, I mean, I was with the state already, but, um, this new job, um, one downside, even though this is kind of, uh, this is considered a promotion is the, the pay will actually decrease, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Let me promote you and pay yeah. you less. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, so I'm doing it for the retirement, but um, uh, so one thing um, we were talking about in the beginning that I might be getting into this this January uh, will be to start guiding for for um, another colleague, um, doing some bird tours and uh, just trying to do like a couple weekend days a month to uh, supplement my income that is now. Uh, been reduced uh, so I can keep up with my mortgage. Yeah, that's a peak up with the mortgage. It's a good thing. Yeah. It is a good thing. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your burning story. Yeah, I, I mentioned at the mm-hmm. beginning of the episode that mm-hmm. you are the son of a really good birder. Art, mm-hmm. Art Wong is uh, one, one of the good birders in the area, one of the most understated, unassuming, <laughs> really good birders you'll ever see. Uh, but uh, I bet he's really proud that you're not only a birder, mm-hmm. but also he Art is one of the biggest activists in the area for social causes. He was a state legislator, state legislator, wasn't mm-hmm. he? Yep. And, and a, was he a judge too? Yep. A state legislator yep. and a judge and is just super involved in Planned Parenthood and uh, political campaigning and you name it. If there's a cause I believe in, he's probably important in it. Yeah. Uh, so you're you're getting into different type of social social uh, justice. You know, working on bird preservation, conservation. Yep. Yep. I. Uh, um, yeah. He's on the board of the Audubon and stuff, and it's funny because he's he's retired. It sure doesn't feel like it. Um, but he does. 
he does find the time to come out and visit me and uh and do a little birding in hawaii so i bet he does um but uh but yep um i i guess i'm I'm not i ended up not going down environmental policy uh route similar um to my dad but uh definitely passionate about conservation um um, i'm on a board now too i'm on board of the hawaii chapter of the wildlife society very good um so I guess I'm following in his footsteps in a way. Very nice. Um, so you live on the Big Island now. I do. You had been on Kauai for several years at least prior to that, had you not? Um, no, I I'd been on Maui for Maui okay. a year plus the plus a couple season field seasons during my masters, and then I uh, had done eight months on Kauai in between my uh, Maui job and the start of grad school. So I have worked on Maui, Kauai, and the Big Island. And uh, the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands too. I guess I assumed you've been on Kauai more. I looked uh, at you know when I brought up Kauai on the on eBird, you're like on the top ten of uh, all time Kauai eBird listers. So I said he must have been there a while. Oh yeah, I didn't I didn't even know that. But uh, <laughs> yep, um, uh, yeah, I worked for the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project um, uh, while I was over there. So uh, nest searching for or well, doing an occupancy survey for two endangered species, the Akikiki and Akikei. And at that time, this is 2012, uh, in the literature, they were saying there were uh, 3,000 of these birds. And from our work, and I was working with this uh, graduate student named Lucas Banky, um, we were coming up with uh, numbers closer to 300, which was very alarming. And we wanted to get the word out this was uh, pretty scary because th- there's a big difference between 3,000 and 300. Yeah. Genetic, uh, genetic diversity is super important, even if you can make a comeback. Yeah, so um, he published his research, and Kauai Forest Words has done a really good job at uh, um, outreach. And uh, I mean, I think the new population estimate is like four or 500 birds, but it's way, way lower than um, what it was. And I think we had a false sense of security um, at that time. So I'm kind of glad that even though it's more dire, it's more realistic. It's sad to say that having 3,000 birds is a false sense of security, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yes, it that's, is. That's not many. <laughs> that's not many. So uh, other than, oh, t- let me take a minute. You said you're going to start guiding for a company. What's the company's name or the person's um, name? Or how, uh, how can people find you is what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. Her Well, her, her name is uh, Mandy... Uh, uh, Talpas and um, I think her. So I, I'm new to this, so I I don't actually know her. I believe her company is called like Hawaii Birding Babe or something. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's tough, um, yeah. I I I don't know how I qualify for that other than knowing the birds. But uh, um, yeah, this is this is definitely a work in progress. Um, uh, but um, yeah, she's been setting up these inner island tours and. Uh, because Hawaii is now part of the uh, ABA, right? Um, we've seen a, a increase in the number of birders coming out here. Has that made a big difference? Uh, I think it has. Yeah. So I think that was one of the the justifications, in my opinion, for including Hawaii was that it would increase birding tourism and therefore increase possible funding and other conservation efforts. Yeah, so um, she only started doing bird tours like two years ago, I think, and, and now she's fully booked and booked up enough that she's asking for assistance. Looking for help. That's yeah. a good sign. Um, and, you know, I see it with uh, 
Um, so I'm also an eBird hotspot reviewer in Hawaii. And there's like this one hotspot, um, this ankyline pool called Opaiula Pond. And I almost didn't make it a hotspot because only me and a handful of other friends of mine would even go there. I did. And then I went and uh, hiked out there not too long ago. I was really surprised. Uh, I ran into a whole group of birders. Um, Port- Very cool. Portland Audubon was there. And I was, I was really surprised. I was like, wow, you guys found this spot? Cause that it's, is true birding tourism when, yeah. when an Audubon Society brings a group there. That's Yeah, and it's off the beaten path. You have to go down this long, uh, not paved road and then hike a mile across the beach. <laughs> and, um, but they were out there. The best, the yeah. best. Uh, so yeah, you've, you're pretty familiar with most of the Hawaiian islands. Uh, give me some of your favorite places to go, maybe go island by island. Just sort of, if, if you're, most people vacation in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been to Hawaii and I've birded a little bit, but I've really been on vacation and got out birding. Uh, so for the person who's, I mean, if somebody's going to take a birding trip, they're going to do their research. They're going to know where to go. But if somebody's on vacation uh, in one of the more popular places, what are some relatively accessible, great places to go? So if you're coming to Hawaii, you want to probably see the endemic forest birds. That would be optimal. Um, you're, I think the easiest place for access is the Big Island. We just It's the biggest island. There are more places that are at high elevation. Um, we have... Uh, the Akiapolau, the Akepa, the Olivi, the Palila, um, quite a few endangered forest birds endemic to just the big island. Um, I would say for, honestly, for ease of getting to see the birds, the big island is your best bet. Okay. Um, Maui has three endemics, the uh, Kiwiku, the Akoikoi, which is dear to my heart, and the Maui Alauhio, but there's really no easy way to see these birds. Um, if you go to Maui, um, you could go to the, the wetlands and pick up some great shorebirds or waterfowl. Um, they have better, uh, they have like Kalia National Wildlife Refuge is probably one of my favorite vagrant traps in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no public access, honestly, to get into the core habitat of the endangered birds. Like, okay. Um, unless you want to do a crazy 12-mile hike across the crater or um, can work your way in with the nature conservancy and get access which is not um not easy to do. not easy um then the best you can do is go to hosmer's grove on maui and and uh see apapana iivi amakihi the common natives and you probably could get the maui alauhio there but you're not going to get the akoikoi or kiwiku so tough on maui tough Kauai. on maui Kauai is uh it, it is a little better access in that you can uh, physically get to the places you're not blocked out by private land ownership. But um, 10 years ago, you could see Akikiki Akike'e in Koke'e State Park, which is a drive up Waimea Canyon, get out of the car, you could have done it. It would be great. Now, the, now when I was there in 2012, um, maybe I should say more than 10 years ago. I think they said 10 years ago when I was there in 2012. Uh, but at that time, you could go out Pihea Trail, um, and or you could go about four miles in, and you'd have a pretty good chance at picking up the endangered, uh, plus uh, another the endangered thrush Puyohi. And now it's uh, they've retracted even further. Um, really, the only place to be guaranteed these endangered birds is about eight miles down 
a really long muddy road or trail. Um, actually you have to, you have to have an, uh, vehicle with off-road, uh, capabilities to go down the camp 10 road and then hike eight miles down this trail. And it's just, you can do it. Um, but it's, but a slog. it's a slog. Yeah. Um, so big islands, I think easiest for access Oahu, uh, while having more limited birds, uh, there is the endangered Oahu Elapayo and the Oahu Amakihi there, and they are fairly accessible. Um, uh, Oahu has a lot of trails, and Oahu also has another great wetland, uh, the James Campbell National Wildlife Refuge, um, a few other wetlands too, but um, Oahu could be really good for shorebirds and waterfowl. Okay. Yeah, I just got back from Kauai a little while ago, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there are tons of introduced birds at low elevations. And, you know, my, you know, it seemed like, well, it's a good thing they've got some introduced birds because there wouldn't be any mm-hmm. birds if there weren't introduced mm-hmm. birds. That's obviously not a scientific approach to thinking about it. But how much do uh, scientists think that introduced birds, other than, other than maybe the owl, uh, have impacted the native species? Do they think they've driven them? It seems like they just, there's no surviving birds there because the avian malaria issue might as well have introduced birds there. I don't know what I think about that. Yeah, quantifying um, the competition between introduced and native birds is really difficult. There was a uh, professor at UH Manoa, um, Lenny Freed, that did try to look into it, but it's it was real messy. Um, you know, I mean, these birds act as reservoirs of the disease that can then be transmitted to the native birds but so there is some negative association but it's um i think the competition thing it's it's hard to prove so i think uh yeah at the lowlands it's it's not a big deal um it's 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 sad but true i guess the the one thing about Kauai birding actually that um that does stand out as well though is uh not for the forest the forest birds are hard but you can do it but Kauai also has access to a lot of great seabirds. Um, the Kilauea, Kilauea Lighthouse. Lighthouse is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So you can just walk up there and see a colony of red-footed boobies and wedge-tailed shearwaters underfoot nesting in the ground. Um, uh, you can see the albatross so um, and tropic birds. So, yeah, Kauai is, Kauai is good for seabirds. Um, that was by far my favorite place I saw in Hawaii in this most recent trip. And the coolest thing was I was there in mid-November, just a couple of weeks ago, and the wedge-tailed shearwaters had largely fledged and gone. Uh, and so I thought, they're fledged and gone. I'll keep an eye out and see one flying around. But I guess they fledge and go and are hostile about it. They're mm-hmm. out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so after a couple of hours of scanning the seas and not seeing any, not seeing a not a tutu, no shearwater. I mean, other, lots of boobies and tropic birds and cool stuff, but no, no shearwaters. And so I talked to the park ranger, and she said, "Oh, your only hope is to find a chick that's still in the nest." And I said, "Oh gosh." She says, "Well, I can't tell you where they are, but the trick is to walk the trails and look for scree on the side of the trail, and then look right beside the scree, and you'll probably find the bird." And I walked down and walked down, and, and sure enough, there's three or four big fresh things of. Uh, or bird poop on the on the edge of the pavement, and it's right behind the place you pay for. You know, you go to pay to get to the park. It's like four feet behind that. And and I look and I go, I don't see that. And I go, it's like about a foot from my nose is, mm-hmm. is the one chick I think left that was accessible on the island. It was pretty cool to see, but 
Yeah. So, so they are still there, or they were still there. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then there, there you'll see if you go to multiple islands that yeah, the seabirds are much more plentiful in Kauai or easier to see. Um, I'm also fortunate I've been to the northwestern Hawaiian Islands twice in the Papahanaumokuakea National Monument. Um, once was uh, 2009, so after I did that uh, internship at uh, right. PRBO, um, I went and did a fall um, on Turn Island in the French Frigate Shoals, banding albatross. It was very cool, a great gig. Um, and then uh, I also got to go to Midway two years ago uh, to help with the, their mouse eradication and and mouse suppression. How is that going there? Is that completed or? No, uh, yeah, it was, it was supposed to be by now, but uh, so they'd already gotten rid of rats through a previous uh, eradication attempt, right. and they got rid of mice on uh, one of the islands, but not the other. Um, you know, they're just, now they're back. They just uh, well, there's they they remained on one on on okay. the main island, uh, sand island there, and so um, the bone and petrels responded to the absence of rats really well, um, and went from like. Um, I don't know, there's now like a million bone and petrels out there. So they, wow. they, they greatly increased in a, like a 20 year period, but, uh, the mice without anything eating them have exploded. You walk around at night and you can just, you can almost step on them. There's just m- the mice everywhere. Um, is there, is there, I mean, poisoning is the obvious solution. Is there a, so they're working on trying to get the funding to do another eradication, which was supposed to have occurred. But in the meantime, an issue came up where the mice were getting so bold that they would jump on the albatrosses' backs that were sitting uh, we've on We've seen their... pictures of them eating their heads. Yeah, so. yeah. And so um, I went out there. We did a, um, a different type of rodenticide than what they were hoping to do for eradication. Um, it's it's called uh, Agrid three, and it just gives them an overdose on vitamin K, basically. Um, so we were spreading that out, and it it, it worked. We had uh, no um, albatross fatalities from mice uh, the year we did that, um, and so now they're doing that every year um, until that funding comes through, which was supposed to have come through but didn't. So uh, right now they're kind of um, yeah just doing the suppression technique. Um, There's an uber wealthy birder out there. I'm sure Grant could happen. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and the other and Midway, um, there are opportunities to get there. It's hard, but um, they do a uh, uh, albatross count every winter. So if you feel like spending uh, your Christmas out there, it's uh, you can get on this list, and it's about two thousand dollars to go, which sounds like a lot, but it's three weeks, and that includes your room and board. And there's great. Thai chefs out there and so honestly the two thousand dollars if you think about it just for your food sounds, sounds like a bargain yeah it actually isn't I'm sure it's hard deal. work but a bargain yeah yeah but these sea, these seabird colonies are are amazing um yeah, very cool yeah. if i'll i'll get from you a, a <laughs> link to a way to volunteer for that and put it in the podcast notes after that sounds pretty cool uh, are there pelagic opportunities I, i've heard of people taking pelagic trips out of hawaii but i haven't really researched how to do that Right, yeah, the, uh, there are now, and it's growing a lot. Um, so when so after I worked on Kauai uh, for eight months in 2012, I moved to the Big Island to start uh, fall semester at Uichilo, and there were no pelagics that we could go on at that time, and so I teamed up with um, this retired biologist Thane Pratt, um, and we kind of just organized our own. 
And so um, I've been organizing uh, since then pretty much two pelagics, once in the spring, once in the fall, um, every year. And it's just a uh, cost-sharing adventure. Um, but since in the last two, maybe three years now, there's two other vendors that uh, have come in. One of them was the um, Mandy, who I mentioned, and she is doing pel pelagics for uh, uh, guiding them. Um, and so she's got a whole bunch of them every every fall and spring now. Um, Very cool. And those are out of which island? Uh, so this is all on the Big Island out of Kona. And okay. Kona is the, um, again, I have a little Big Island bias here, but I think it's the best island for a pelagic uh, because you're in the lee of the Big Island. And um, so the you get A, a into offshore, uh, really deep offshore waters quickly. Um, and and not, not so rough. B, it's not rough, yeah. Oahu tries to do a pelagic every year, and I've never gone on it, but I, I hear it's pretty... Uh, Big seas. Yeah. I, Big seas. You need a stern stomach for that yeah, one. That would not be for me. Yeah. And then Kauai doesn't have any regular pelagics at this point, um, but what you can do, or what I've done, is uh, I sign up for the uh, snorkel tour off of uh, Lehua Islet, um, and... So you get to go on a boat, uh, on a catamaran out to there, mm -hmm. and snorkeling's great, but um, it's a chance to get uh, close to Lehua, and uh, Lehua has some mass boobies on it, or uh, lace and albatross are common there, but black-footeds are not, so you might get that out there too. Very cool. Um, so there are now increasing numbers of pelagic opportunities, especially out of the Big Island, Yeah, uh, which sounds like a great reason to go to the Big Island, plan your, plan your trip there around a pelagic. Yeah, and and this may get messy, but yeah, I, I currently plan to still do my two pelagics, one spring, one fall every year. Um, uh, it's I've kind of I've done it. I did it last year as an organized field trip for the Wildlife Society. Mm -hmm. um, do those fill up in a heartbeat down, in, or do you have? Are you, is, uh, is no. It, oh, so there's no. opportunity to get onto one of those. I'll uh, I'll make yeah. sure you let me know when they are, and I'll put word out. Yeah, uh, they they haven't been. I've never been full um, until I mean, but things are changing. So, yeah, so. now that these pelagics are going out and uh, um, and uh, the commercial ones are at a much greater cost because I'm I'm doing it just to go so out. So you myself. can get out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's... Um, and so yeah, there. Since I'm seeing a lot of those happening, I think uh, there's a lot more demand. Um, again. I think because Hawaii is now part of the ABA. Very cool. So you've birded a fair bit in the United States. So I, I just looked mm -hmm. at your eBird profile, and you've certainly been to a handful of states. Do you have favorite stateside places you've been? Um, oh, a uh, weird one. I, I love the Salton Sea in California. Who doesn't? It's a bird. Um, if, you, if you can stand the smell. Yeah. Yep. Um, and actually, my my favorite uh, birding place on the Big Island, or the not my favorite birding place, but one that I go to a lot is the uh, Kona side waste, uh, wastewater treatment plant. So I, I do associate that bad smell of, with great birds. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I've done a bit of birding in California. Um, um, so before that interlude between uh, undergrad and, and my AmeriCorps internship on Maui, um, I also worked in Alaska and the Aleutian Islands. I uh, did a uh, summer on Boldier Island up there. A lot of great uh, Asian shorebird vagrants, which mm -hmm. um, I still get in Hawaii, which I'm uh, stoked cool. about every fall. Yeah, that's nice. Um, and 
yeah, Southeast Arizona was excellent. I remember one weekend getting a 12 species of hummingbird in a weekend, and that was... That's impressive. Um, that was excellent. August, probably? Uh, July, something like that? Yeah, yeah, it was It was probably July. It was right before I left. No, no, it was It was earlier than that, actually. I think it was like May. But, okay. Um, but yeah, that was excellent until uh, now I've had a chance to go to Costa Rica and Panama, and uh, I kind of kind of blew that out of proportion it, it pales it yeah pales that yes where did you go in uh costa rica my daughter lives in costa rica so i'll be visiting there from time to time where did you go there um i went with my dad actually we went on a birding trip um was it a guided tour uh, sort of thing or you just went together no we just went went together we rented a car we drove there it was, it was that was interesting um though not as interesting the as or I should say scary, as driving in the Dominican Republic. That was probably the my worst nightmare of, of <laughs> places to drive. Uh, but yeah, we we drove ourselves around. Um, we went to uh, both the Pacific side and, and the Caribbean side. Um, I remember going to the La Selva Eco Lodge. We did, we did stay at, that was like one of the nicer places we stayed and um, loved it there. Uh, just having all the hummingbird feeders out at breakfast and very uh, nice. That's in the mountains. Yeah. I, I, Los, oh wait, La Selva was, was a not an eco lodge. Sorry, that was a um, that was a while ago now. So that was a, uh, a research station. But um, I'm thinking of uh, Rancho Naturalista. I think it was called. That was the eco lodge we went to. Yeah. I don't know. It's been a while. That's yeah. okay. My memory is uh, foggy yeah. for things after a couple of days. Forget about a few years. So. Uh, what plant? What what does the future look for like for you, Alex, in terms of uh, birding? Do you have uh, uh, or career plans or whatever? What 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 do you see in the future of uh, of Alex Wong? Well, um, uh, so I, I shared with you this uh, book on uh, sadly extinct birds of Hawaii, and I I think it's uh, I will do as much as I can um, to prevent any of the birds I work on from entering that book in the future. So um, I love my job. I have an amazing job. I get to fly in helicopters and go find uh, new colonies of petrels. And uh, one of my projects is on uh, the endangered Akia Palau, which is uh, this honey creeper that's got a really cool bill, um, sometimes called the Hawaiian woodpecker or uh, Swiss Army knife bird. It's got uh, this really long top side of its uh, bill and a short a lower mandible. Okay. And it hammers into the bark with its lower mandible uh, like a chisel while keeping its mouth open, um, unlike <laughs> unlike our American uh, woodpeckers. And then it close up bill, sure. And then it backs up and it uses the long hooked uh, upper mandible to harpoon out uh, grubs out of the out of the bark. Really cool. Um, and so there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of unknowns still left in Hawaii. Um, that's why I chose to work there. Is uh, I got into birds, wanted to do kind cons- of a research frontier still. Yeah, wanted to do conservation, and um, you know, we, it's the ex- extinction capital of the world, and we still have all these other endangered birds. And this this one, um, you know, there's only been like 17 nests found of this bird. We mm-hmm. can't conclusively say when its breeding season is. Like and it's 2019. Um, well, it, some tropical birds don't really have a breeding season. When it mm-hmm. rains the right amount, they breed. Or mm-hmm. is, is that a possibility there? 
It's a possibility. I think I think I'm on to it though. I think uh, I, I think uh, the work we're doing. So we've been radio tagging them okay. um, and tracking them, hand tracking them, um, and figuring out where their home range and territory sizes are. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing a difference um, when that they have a bigger home range uh, in the winter, and then it tightens up into a territory kind of spring and. So, so, so you think they breed in the spring? Um, I think they breed in late summer. Um, that okay. <laughs> it's uh, it's getting there. Um, this year we had uh, four uh, chicks from banded parents that we, we didn't find their nest, but uh, we they all had we we could note what you know first time we saw chicks and it was all in the end of August and uh, sept- early September, suggesting that they were nesting in July. Um, good evidence so that's a work in progress but uh um but yeah i mean uh the normal uh breeding season for hawaiian forest birds is november to may um which makes things weird for banding on a temperate calendar because um uh, if you've done some bird banding the like after hatch year and hatch year things don't, don't really apply if you uh or don't apply very well if you have a hatch year that was born in December. Um, <laughs> is it a second year come January, even yeah. though it's, yeah. so, um, but, uh, that's, that's kind of the, uh, that's the time of year when the Ohialehua, the, our main tree, uh, high elevation, uh, native tree, it blooms at high elevation in, at that time of year. And that's when the, most of the birds seem to more food cater their breeding season around. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. So Alex, how can listeners reach out to you? I mean, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Um, I would say email me, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not the best millennial. I do have, uh, Instagram and Facebook, but I am not, uh, super on it. You don't hover over it, but somebody found you on Facebook and sent you a direct message. You'd, you'd find out sooner or later. Right. There, there might be a slight time lag, but yeah, I I would, I would get it eventually. Um, Uh, and, and your uh, Facebook uh, handle, or how would they find it? What? Um, well, uh, Facebook, I don't know, Alex Wong. Alex Wong, Hawaiian birder, they'd get you. Uh, a sp- or Wong spelled with an A. Um, there actually are a lot of people with this name, so it could be tricky, but um, on Instagram, my handle is Alcid Alex from when I worked in the Aleutians. <laughs> okay, that works. Um, and that's uh, my eBird uh username too okay um good so that uh, sounds like your your people can find you if they want to that's mm-hmm, good to know mm-hmm. that's good to know and pretty soon they'll be able to hire you to take them on a birding trip yeah i think i think that might be in the cards um that's good well what as soon as you find out exactly how that works uh let me know and i'll uh, i'll give a shout out for that on one of the podcast introductions because uh i know lots of west coast birders want to go to hawaii and they it from personal experience, mm-hmm. finding uh, native birds in Hawaii is not a small task. Uh, if you're if you're not if you don't know your way around that well, so having a guide would be much like going to you know the tropics. If you're not a, a hot tropical bird, or finding uh, finding birds is tough, and identifying them even tougher. Uh, so having a guide is not a bad thought. Yeah, these, these some of the endangered birds are are pretty tricky, and you you really got to know their calls. Um, the have a chance so um yeah i can i can let you know about that and uh um uh one thing i didn't i didn't mention i told you about our my work with seabirds and mm-hmm. akis or right. uh, 
I've uh, been trying to do a lot of these uh, translocations of our endangered birds. Um, it's This year was a challenging year. We had two translocations. One I was very involved with, which was a palila, uh, moving captive-bred palila from the San Diego Zoo to a new uh, location to create a second population of them. Right. Uh, our biggest fear for palila currently is a fire. They're in the subalpine having one zone. one localized population of mm-hmm. any species is always scary because just something happens there it's all over so um unfortunately this translocation did not go very well we we uh, were going to release 30 captive birds we ended up stopping after only releasing eight uh and only one of those may still be alive we're not sure um turns we released them and the uh, native predator the pueo um uh, uh, ate all these naive captive birds. So, um, not quite sure how we're going to deal with that one. Um, I think, uh, I think our line of our, our reasoning is maybe we don't rely on the captive bred birds. Um, we just try to do a hard re- translocation of wild birds. I, I just did a, for as kind of a tongue in cheek post, mm-hmm. I put up a Thanksgiving post on wild turkeys. Mm. And uh, wild turkeys, there were probably 10 million wild turkeys pre, pre-Columbian days mm. in, in, the, in the United States. And they dwindled down to maybe 30,000 birds in the mid-1920s, mm. maybe 200,000. There's this debate about how many there were, but they were becoming a concern. Mm-hmm. And when a, a game bird becomes a concern and hunters get involved, there's serious money behind that. And also, so, they, and so they tried and tried, and it's really hard to catch a turkey. Hmm. Uh, they found out they tried the, all kinds of traps and they just you just couldn't catch these guys <laughs> uh, and so they they caught a few and they bred them captively just like you mm-hmm. said and they put the birds out and they just they never made it mm. it turns out you have to have a parent wild turkey to teach you how to survive as a wild turkey to make it and all these birds just got killed uh, and so they came up with a, a way to cat they came up with a, what's called a cannon net Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they take a cannon and they throw a net out of a cannon to flock of turkeys mm-hmm. and catch a bunch of them. And so they finally became proficient at catching turkeys. And then they started using real wild turkeys. They just moved to another place and they just took off. And it went so you know, low. There are now over 6 million wild turkeys in the U.S. in 49 of the 50 states, including Hawaii. Yeah, we have a lot of them, actually. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> including Hawaii, which, yep. you know, may or may not be a good thing. Uh, probably not. Uh but anyway, they used to be in 39. In, mm-hmm. They used to be in what are now 39 of the states, and now they're in 49 of the mm-hmm. states and, and really thriving. But they found that with even something you'd think is a turkey, if mm-hmm. a big old mm-hmm. bird, they can survive, not. Uh, so same story. So yeah, well, yeah, I think the, the ticket is to keep trying. Because um, yeah, it was the 2019, we had this Palila translocation that didn't go super great. We had another one that I, I wasn't as involved about uh, with because it was over on Maui with the uh, QEQ. They captured wild birds and took captive birds and tried to release them in a new location as well, start a new population on the leeward side of Haleakala. And unfortunately, this fall um, exceeded uh, uh, the elevation that the mosquitoes were thought to be at. Oh, and boy. instead of it being a safe place, uh, it, all these birds, unfortunately, died from disease, it looks like. So um, at well above uh, the elevation line that we thought. Um, Would I mean, be that, safe. Yeah, this was, this was at 5,800, even 6,000 feet. So, oh, my goodness. Um, 
yeah, uh, scary stuff, but it's the, again, this elevation line, it moves and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's higher probably on Maui where the, the volcano is steeper. Um, it's not as far for a gust to bring some mosquitoes up to that elevation, um, right. yeah. distance wise as on a big shallow sloped big Island. Um, so our, our mosquito line t- typically is lower than on Maui because Makes it's not sense. as steep. Makes sense. Um, but one, uh, one that is going better is, uh, um, I'm also involved on the big Island with the Alala reintroduction, which is the Hawaiian crow. And so now we've done four releases into one of the natural area reserves I work at most, uh, Pumakala Natural Area Reserve. Okay. And uh, and they're they're out there. So far they're surviving. So now, far they're surviving. They, they'll start uh, to, I mean, you would think crows could find food. We've been uh, supplementally feeding them, which helps. Um, but uh, they are they are eating wild foods. There's a lot of um, native fruits out there, um, and this this uh, spring we had. Uh, two pairs try to nest for the first time one one did nest it was not successful but uh um uh they they built a nest and we didn't get to see the egg but she's uh the female sat on it uh non-stop for three weeks so um, must have been an egg there yep must have been an egg and that was the first time there'd been a breeding attempt of all law um since the 90s so that's promising yeah promising so there are glimmers of hope mm-hmm. that's good that's yeah good. yeah no these translocations are hard um i think we got to keep doing them i think we're gonna figure it out we just have to be adaptive there's a lot of things that can go wrong and we just gotta it, it, yeah get it dialed in every every effort i've heard of there's a, a, a learning curve and mm-hmm. you, you learn from your mistakes and you get better and you learn from mistakes and get better uh i've had uh, tasha was on as my guest uh uh, a while ago, she's been working with uh, uh, eiders, uh, stellars, sea eiders, stellars eiders in Alaska. And it took her like 15 years to figure out how to get them to breed in captivity. It, it was not a small, I mean, there's all unbelievable number of variables. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know that um, captivity is the way to go with a lot of our forest birds. I mean, the Alala is a corvid and um, it seems like it's gone through that bottleneck of captivity a lot better than, um, our honey creepers. Uh, they just, I think there's too much involved yeah. in instincts. Crow's and... big enough that there aren't that many. And for people who haven't been to Hawaii, there are very few raptors on Hawaii. Mm-hmm. The Hawaiian hawk is still on the big island. Yes. Yep. Yep. That's, but that's only that, on the big that's island. That's the only diurnal raptor. Uh, and the pueo, the the short-eared owl. Um, but I, I guess I think of those. Yeah. Owl. Yeah. Okay. But uh, but yeah, those are the only two native ones, and then the barn owl. Um, so, so a bird as big as a crow doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot of uh, avian predators, at least. Mm-hmm. But the eo is a predator, and the alala that we have lost uh, so far actually has been eo predation. So, uh, it is it is a problem mm-hmm. or is a factor. Yeah. Very cool. Alex, thanks so much for coming up today. I really appreciate you taking time away from your family and on vacation to come talk to me. And I'm excited about the work that you're doing, and I'll try to stay in touch and learn about it. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Ed, and I'm excited to see where things go. I'm, uh, I love the conservation work I'm doing, um, but uh, it's exciting to be in Hawaii um, now with uh, its inclusion to ABA and uh, to see how birding is taking off. And, yeah, hopefully at some point that will translate into a uh, 
greater funds for for the for these conservation projects like translocations. So. Terrific. Thanks so much. Thanks again. Bye bye. Well, that wraps up the Brabanner podcast episode number 41 with Alex Wong. I had a good time today talking to Alex. I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Uh, And uh, I may not put up an episode for a couple of weeks. I'm going to go on on a trip to visit my son in Asia. I'll be in uh, Thailand and around Phnom Penh and Cambodia. Maybe I'll get a little birding in while I'm there. I'm not expecting to try to put up a podcast from there. I think that'll be more than I can handle. Uh, So maybe a couple of weeks before you hear from me again on the podcast. So until then... Good birding, good day.